time to screw the norms. To fit in, we often hide what's on our minds, who we really are, or who we want to be, or even what we want to do. But now you're having the right conversations. Here, we'll talk about sex, relationships, and mental health, and how they interact with each other and so many other aspects of life. Shame can't survive when we're honest and curious with each other and ourselves. It's time for your mind to scream less and for you to screw more. I'm Rachel Wright, a non-monogamous queer psychotherapist and your host. You've probably figured this out by yourself by now, but if you own a vulva, did you know that there is a three in five chance that having penetrative sex doesn't result in an orgasm? Enter Zumio. (laughs) Zumio is a -a one-of-a-kind toy with the sole purpose of providing a unique, stimulating experience. And guess what? It doesn't even vibrate. It rotates with a concentrated pinpoint energy that allows you to control how and where you use it. There are four different models specifically designed for your personal intensity preferences. And Zumio is great for vulva mapping and exploring the rest of your body, whether that is solo or with a partner. Check out www.myzumio.com slash Rachel. That's R-A-C-H-E-L for a special discount for the Right Conversations listeners and take control of your orgasms today. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to The Right Conversations. And today we are having a conversation about STIs and disclosure with Janelle Marie Pierce. And I am so thrilled to have her with us today. Before you're like, oh, STIs, disclosure, that doesn't sound so uplifting. I'm going to skip this one. Please don't. Please, 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 please don't. There is so much stigma and shame and shit and misinformation out there about this topic. And we have the expert in this space here with us. So Janelle is the executive director of the STI project. She's the education manager for health HIV and a spokesperson for positivesingles.com for, if you don't know, that is a dating website for folks who have HSV um, one and two. She's a certified sexuality educator And she has been dismantling stigma by reclaiming STI narratives through awareness, education, and acceptance since 2012. So we have both been in this space for a long ass time. Janelle, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. It doesn't seem like a decade, you know, like that seems like such a long time. I'm like, oh, I still feel like I'm hip and cool. (laughs) Right. Same. I know. I know. It's wild when things start being like, oh, over a decade ago when I was doing the career that I'm doing right now. Right, exactly. And it thought when I first started doing this, I thought it's going to be like, that seems so far off, you know, like to have been doing this work for 10 years just seemed like this pipe dream that I was reaching for. And it's phenomenal that it's I've been able to achieve it. But yeah, to still be in this space. And um, it's really it's an honor. It really is. It's an ongoing honor to be able to work in this space. Well, we're so grateful for you. Why don't we just start by telling your story? How did you get here? What called you to this work? And then we can get into the the nitty gritty of the work itself. Yeah, I came by this work. Um, I'm a certified sexuality educator through ASEC, and I came by this work indirectly, like not in a 
graduated knew this is exactly what I was going to do. At one point I was a theater major and then I thought maybe natural resource management and then I landed on um, business and accounting and I have a BBA and an MBA and I did a lot of work in healthcare but in the corporate uh, for-profit sector. So somewhat related but really from a like I, that's a stretch of course but what really drew me to this is I was in that corporate um, corporate world as an analyst and a project manager at the time working for Stryker and um, out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I was really good at my job, but I just felt like I wasn't fulfilled. Like I wasn't doing what I was really truly meant to be I, from an existential, like mm-hmm. I don't know, kind of like woo-woo type of mindset of like, I just thought that there was a way in which I could contribute. And because I had, <clears throat> excuse me, I had personal experience Um, I had genital herpes and I was diagnosed with genital herpes when I was 16 years old. And I finally got to a place in my professional and personal life where I felt really confident in who I was. I was to the the extent that you can be at 29 years old. I I felt very self-assured and very aware of my identity and confident in who I was and what I had become as an individual from uh, all around perspective. And and, like I said, both a personal and professional space. And so I thought, you know, the perspective that I'm supposed to hate myself, I'm a less than, I'm unworthy, I'm damaged, I'm never going to have healthy, wonderful, pleasurable relationships. All of that didn't come true and didn't actually reflect mm. my actual lived experience. And I thought there's got to be some resources out there that showcase this and that tell those stories because I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one who's had an amazing experience and really supportive um, peers as well as, and not all of them have been, of course, but I, but ultimately at 29, I had come to this really wonderful place. And I thought once I started looking, there weren't resources out there. There weren't people talking about their experiences yet. And, um, or at least very, very few at that point in time, 10 years ago. And so I thought I need to do that. I need to, not only do I need to share my experience so that folks know that there's a different way in which to look at contracting an STI and what that means as well as what relationships might mean, et cetera. But I also need to reflect others' experiences. I need to find folks who have shared um, similar experiences and perspectives, and then alternative perspectives too, because some people have really awful um, awful interactions. And not, not all of mine have been great either, of course, but the whole purpose was launching the STI project at that point in time. I quit my corporate career and said, all right, let's do this. Like, let's try and re- reduce the stigma Let's create education and awareness around this topic that very few seem to be talking about, and let's provide a safe space with um, with a different perspective that isn't available yet, and and a lot of different resources aren't aren't accessible. So that was essentially the goal, and now we've been doing that for the last ten years. Incredible, incredible. Would you share what your diagnosis process was like at sixteen? Because I I think a lot of people are shocked when they hear that herpes are, is not on a typical STI panel. And then they're also shocked to hear that it can't always be uh, prevented by condom usage. They're also shocked to hear that the cold sore that they had when they were five is herpes, right? Like there are so many things and I'm wondering what your experience was like with that diagnosis. Oh yeah. And I'm like nodding in the background. Y'all can't see me, but I'm like, yes, 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 exactly. I mean, I have people argue like, oh no, I've been tested for herpes and I have to like walk through why. No, you have not. You probably have not. 
the vast majority of people have not. And only 12% of all sexually active people are even getting tested for the STIs that you can be tested for each year. So the idea- Wow, is that the stat right now? And that was pre-COVID. And so we know that number has gone down as a result because a lot of the disease intervention specialists were repurposed for COVID. People weren't going out and accessing any kind of, especially preventative healthcare. It was only necessity, um, emergency kind of situations. And so people weren't doing- those those testing even if they were regularly previously which we know that it was only it was a low number and the number hasn't come out since of what that number is now and what that number has changed to as a result so it's less but yeah isn't that atrocious 12 percent, and you're like yeah wow. that's <laughs> horrendous i wow yeah wow yeah, shocking and people feel like no it's safe or you know the people that i'm engaging in activities with like they're responsible and thoughtful adults and whatever and like they might be in a lot of different ways but they're not likely getting tested and they're also even if they have gotten tested recently which is awesome they haven't been tested for herpes because it's not on a panel and like you yeah. said yeah like when i was diagnosed i was shocked mortified and my experience at that point right because i was talking about how i launched the sti project when i was 29 but my experience at 16 was awful my doctor shamed me i was diagnosed by my general (sighs) practitioner i had an outbreak at the time and of course first outbreaks if you are someone who has symptomatic outbreaks which most people don't most people who have herpes are asymptomatic and we know that term now thankful to covid the only thing i'll thank covid for is that it taught us what asymptomatic means, meaning that you can have the infection, you can transmit it to other people, but you may never actually know you were infected in the the first place. And that is true for all STIs, including herpes. And so I happen to have what some folks would assume is like a typical first outbreak, which where your first outbreak is always the worst, almost always the worst, unless you are immunocompromised because your immune system hasn't had an opportunity to develop antibodies to start suppressing the virus. So I go in, with this outbreak, I had showed my mom because I finally, it wasn't going away. It was getting worse. I was so uncomfortable. And I finally had to show her like what's happening. And she got me an appointment right away. She didn't tell me at the time, but she was pretty sure she knew what it was. She was just hoping for my sake that that's not the case and that it ended up being something else. But of course it was, it was herpes. And the doctor said, you have general herpes. And he walked out of the room. Um, and then he gave me a prescription, came back in, gave me a prescription for Veltrex, said, this is the worst case that I've ever seen. And you're going to need to take it every day. <laughs> so wow, like, fuck oh that guy. Oh my gosh. Fuck him. Yes, exactly. Yes. I can't even, yes, yes, yes. Thank you. I mean, not only am I 16 contracting and getting diagnosed with this highly stigmatized infection. I'm being told by my doctor that this is the worst ever that he's ever seen. And you're thinking that of all the people who might be empathetic, show compassion, have knowledge around a subject like this, it would be a practitioner, a medical practitioner. And for them to then respond with this like shocked and, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. Not only do I feel dirty, damaged, less than, unworthy, disgusting, all of the above. Now I feel like the dirtiest, the most damaged, the lowest person that could possibly exist type of thing. And what's crazy about this, Rachel, like get this. So in my mind, I'm thinking later on, I'm thinking, because at the time I thought I deserve this and this is what I get for not having or for having sex before marriage and not waiting until marriage. And this is what I get for exploring and um, all of the things that then you start to like, you start to materialize in your head and internalize from, from your like the cognitive dissonance that you've learned, all this bias that you've learned growing up and all of this, the shaming that is established as 
we start learning about sexuality and our culture is so horrible around this, of course. So all of that, I am going around and around in my head and thinking this is deserving. And later I realized like, no, that was in a horrible situation. I should never have been treated that way. Like this is many years later when I launched the STI project. Then as I launched the STI project and start interviewing other folks, I start learning that my experience is not unique. I'm not a unique snowflake, which I'm, I'm in some ways it was um, validating to know that that I wasn't alone, but I also, it becomes even more frustrating and sad to know that other people are getting shamed by their practitioners too, and many, many other people. So many folks echo to me similar stories of how their practitioners either told them wrong, medically inaccurate information, and or a combination of shame, and this is a result of your bad behavior, and you shouldn't have done this and didn't you know and just it's awful 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 so there's a lot of work to be done <laughs> oh god uh, it just like it i'm sitting here with my head shaking no 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 and yeah. it's so incredibly frustrating so okay let's start with what what do you want people to know about stis and herpes and and I make the distinction only because it's so much more stigmatized and it's not tested for. I've even had doctors say, you know, we won't test for it unless there is an active outbreak because the test is faulty. And frankly, the diagnosis creates more psychological damage because of the stigma than the virus itself. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually push back against that. Like I understand the logic behind there's no point in testing folks because the one, the accessibility of the highest efficacy test that is available, meaning like the tests that are most reliable, they're not accessible. There's a really high price point. Um, you have to go to specific locations like specific universities that research HSV in order to get these types of tests. And so the tests that they have that you can readily get are okay um but there are a lot of different um there are a lot of different circumstances in which you might receive a false negative that's the most common mm -hmm. a false negative like you actually have it and it's telling you you don't and then there are false positives sometimes too those are less common but um but that still happens as well and that's again it speaks to the efficacy like the reliability of the testing yeah um still leaves much to be desired and so a lot of practitioners will say basically everyone has herpes and so rather than having you go through the psychological trauma we're just going to assume you have it and we're not really even going to discuss it and i feel like that does the patient the consumer the person each person a disservice and and, and it, it it is a um it disempowers them in their personhood. Like, I feel like the more information that we provide, the more education, the better then we can move forward with the choices that we're making so that we feel confident, we can feel as safe as possible and as responsible as possible with the choices so that we can enjoy the activities that we're engaging in so that we can truly be mindful and present and engaging in that pleasure that we're seeking at that point in time. And so I feel like it's a problem that we're not doing that. I understand why currently that routine testing is not recommended, et cetera. But you asked, um, you know, if there's one thing that I could tell people and that changes over time right now, of course, <laughs> what I think, you yeah, know, like, today, 
and, you know, with the culture and what I and what I hear, what seems to resonate. And right now, I think the like the big message that I wish that people knew and understood is that most people are going to get an STI at some point in their lives. You are more likely to contract an STI than you are to not. And so it's okay to not want an infection and not want an STI. I don't want any more STIs if I can help it. I don't want to contract COVID. I don't want a cold or the flu. I don't want to get poison ivy when I go through the forest and hiking this weekend. Like, right. you know, that's totally understandable that we don't want any additional things that we have to manage with our health. So I respect that. The But these things happen because we're not infallible. Our bodies are resilient and incredible, but we're not infallible and we are susceptible to a myriad of different kinds of pathogens and, and risks. And we're taking risks every single day. Some of them, a lot of that is subconsciously that we're doing, we're, we're doing risk mitigation and considering our risk and making choices based on what the potential outcome, the benefit to us is. And so I wish that we could look at it from that perspective. Like we are likely to contract an infection. There are things that we can do to reduce those risks. And so I get to choose and each person gets to choose what level of risk mitigation makes sense for them and makes them most comfortable. And that also can change per relationship and over time. Um, and there, you know, that's an ongoing process on this continuum that doesn't have to be static at all. And it can reflect where you're at in your life personally and what your goals are. But I just wish that we could accept and be aware of that, just like we accept that we might get the flu this season, or we might right. get COVID, or we might get a cold, or again, I'm going to go hiking and I might get a tick on me. Do I want a tick on me? No, those are fucking gross. Like, right, <laughs> right. exactly, exactly. Nasty and ooh, they give me the creepy crawlies. You know, like it's really awful. However, it might happen, and then I handle it, and that's what we do. And like, of course, certain things are temporary, and that's where the distinction, like you're talking about, is in. I think there's two things that make herpes so stigmatized. Um, one, because it's forever. And so there isn't a cure at this point in time and or even a, um, a vaccine. And so the idea that you can't get rid of it and you're stuck with it forever adds a layer of a kind of, um, it just adds a layer to it that, that, that impacts the level of stigma that's associated with it. And then secondarily, I think what also impacts that stigma is that for the vast majority of people, it's a relatively benign infection. And now that's not to, um, that's not to uh, disrespect or to, to set aside the folks who do have severe reactions and impact, but the vast majority of all people who contract herpes, it is a manageable relatively mild infection that doesn't have any long-term consequences. So what that means is that it's easy to make fun of because it's not cancer. You're not going to die tomorrow from herpes. It's not heart attack. And, you know, it's, it's not some of these things that we look at that like, no, we're not going to laugh at because these are very serious, but herpes is actually pretty mild for most, like I said, the vast majority of all people. And so um, it's easy to make fun of, and then it's easy to put in this very specific category that is highly stigmatized and that perpetuates. And then there's, of course, many, many other layers that add to the stigma, but those are kind of some of the bigger pieces. And I think that's the difference between like the vast majority of STIs or like a lot of STIs versus herpes um, and why 
yeah, that's essentially yeah. that's it. That's what we need to know is as where we're headed or, or that this is likely. <laughs> we're all I, likely. Yeah, I really appreciate that too. Cause I, I was having a conversation with a client once and they were non-monogamous or becoming non-monogamous, shifting from monogamy into non-monogamy. And one of the individuals in this couple, their biggest fear was STI contract, like contracting an STI. And I asked this person, are you afraid every day when your kid comes home from school that you're going to contract strep throat? Right. And they looked at me like I had 18,000 heads. <laughs> and I said, I'm serious. Like, just think about, just think about it for a second. I'm, I'm not trying to be like snide or silly. It's a, it's a real question. Mm -hmm. And they responded with, well, I guess I don't want strep throat, but that's part of the risk of a kid being out in the world and kids share yeah. germs. And I guess if I get it, I'll take antibiotics and I'll be okay brilliant. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of stared at them and, and stayed silent. And they were like, Oh, oh. <laughs> I see what you just did. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Oh, one of my family members just did that around monkeypox. And they were like, you know, I have a, um, I have an LGBTQ family member and they were worried about that fam family member and the risk of contracting monkeypox from them. And I said, actually, that is reflecting really how you're feeling around that individual their identity and their orientation it's not a reflection of your true risk because my daughter's in daycare you're much more likely to contract scabies or molluscum from me because i held my daughter right before i came and visited and then i hugged you then right. you are to contract monkeypox from them so if right. you're not worried about contracting molluscum or scabies from me, because molluscum or scabies is one of those gray area STIs that can also be transmitted non-sexually when it's an adult, it's commonly sexually transmitted. So it's oftentimes in daycare or childcare um, and or elder care settings because people are in close contact, but then like people in middle age adults and young adults or whatever are contracting it through sexual activity. So I digress. Point is though, that just like you said, exactly. Perfect example of like, no, you're not really worried about that because you don't have this preconceived judgment around my identity, my orientation, our relationship. Really, you're just projecting how you feel about what their behavior is or what you perceive their behavior to be and what you think that morale looks like from an ethical or moral standpoint. And so the risk exactly. is not really any different. Yeah. So, okay, this is a perfect transition. And speaking of ethics, <laughs> I want to transition into talking about disclosure. Yes. Um, and I think that there's an ethical component here. And then I also think that for a lot of people, because, and I talk a lot about how we don't get taught how to communicate, and we also don't get taught about sex. So then when we're asked to communicate about sex, mm. we just flail. Yeah, right? like, I like that too. We don't get taught how to communicate. So true. Yeah. And so it's like, now I have to talk about this thing that I don't really know a lot about. And I don't even know really like how to talk. It's just, it's a recipe for a mess. And then of course, like then you add in the stigma and shame and like these conversations, it's so many people I have heard, like it was just too overwhelming. I avoided it. Yeah. And these are then people who are burdened with guilt of feeling as though they acted unethical and and had sex in a non-ethical way because they didn't disclose about whether yeah. it was 
you know, chlamydia diagnosis or, or a herpes diagnosis or HPV or whatever it may be. Um, so I would love to just hear your process and advice for folks around disclosure. Yeah, 100%. It is, it is the number one question that I get across the board and the biggest fear, especially um, in the first stages of diagnosis after someone's diagnosed, but really that even, that even carries on. I can, I talk to some people who've had herpes or any other STI that's longer term for 10 years, and they're still petrified of this conversation and the outcome. And so there's a couple of things to think about that I think help reframe this. So first of all, it's the, the fear is around rejection and everyone hates rejection. Nobody wants to be rejected for any reason whatsoever. So that's totally understandable, just like it's understandable that we don't want a new infection if we can help it of any kind. So I can empathize with that and I get it. Um, but what we have to think about is that we can get rejected for a myriad of different reasons, a plethora of things, and we oftentimes don't even get to know why. And the reason why the rejection around this STI diagnosis feels so scary is because the rejection then confirms the cognitive bias that already exists in our minds about our status and what that means about our identity. So when we get diagnosed with an STI, everything we have learned around what an STI diagnosis must mean for someone and all of the sexual shame that we have developed over time and ingested over time as a result of all of our experiences and our external influences, then that comes piling all in at one point and saying like, this now means this. This diagnosis means I am A, B, C, D, and E, all bad things. And so if someone rejects us for our STI, when we disclose an STI diagnosis, then that's where the bias is saying, see, that, that means it's right. All of those bad things that we think and we're worried are true about us as a result of this diagnosis, see, that is affirming and confirming this belief. And so it's huge and strong from a psychological standpoint of why that is so scary, why that is so impactful. And to erode and unravel that takes some work because this, this bias that we think hold in our minds around like what this means for our identity that is developed in our formative years and stuff that develops in our formative years always takes a lot of work to unravel and to relearn, unlearn exactly. And to reestablish and relearn what that, what that actually truly from a more practical, realistic and and more reflective of our actually lived experience is going to look like. So that's kind of the big, big psychological, how this sociological, the psychosocial impact that, that this is having, but also I think from a practical okay, but that sounds great, but how do I go about this and how do I feel good about it? And what we're doing when we're, when we're super afraid of this conversation is we're forgetting that it's a conversation, that this should be a dialogue, that even mm. though we're not very good at communicating in a dialogue and we don't necessarily communicate to listen, and, um, we also have a hard time being vulnerable. Our culture does not support vulnerability, but in order to connect and have intimacy. And this doesn't even mean physical intimacy. This is just connection across all relationships. We have to share some vulnerability. So that vulnerable piece is scary because we don't know how that's going to be received. But again, this should look like, and the way in which to make it feel a little less scary, one of the ways, of course, is to 
remember that this is a conversation, a mutual, a mutual reciprocal dialogue, whereas you're sharing information, but you're also looking for information in return because your autonomy, your safety, your, your boundaries are just as important as whomever and you were engaging in. So whichever partner or partners you're having this conversation with, you also want to know what is their status? What would they like to do to mitigate risk? How do they approach safer sex and testing? And when have they been tested? And do they know what they've been tested for? Which infections? Because most people are like, well, I've been tested for all the things, in quotes, um, quote, unquote. And you can't be tested for all STIs. So that immediately tells me that they only have a tertiary idea of an understanding around STIs. And so you need to know more, which infections, when were, was that last test? Have they engaged in activities since? Maybe you wanna get tested together. You know, this is a whole thing. It doesn't necessarily even have to be a big, long, serious conversation. It can be very in-depth if you'd like it to be, but it also can be casual through text message. Here's what I wanna share with you. What's your status? Do you know, how do we wanna move forward? Like, I'm digging this. Like, I really am kind of thinking like, we're gonna take it to the next level. This is what I want to talk about, though, before we do that. I mean, it can be pretty quick, especially if it's in a casual situation and more of a hookup kind of situation. It doesn't have to be a big sit down, long, intimate, vulnerable conversation. There's going to be some vulnerability regardless. But it, but the whole thing is looking at it like a conversation. You want information from them. You're sharing information with them because you also want information in return. And it's um, the health of each individual involved is is just as important. So the person with the known infection, their health is just as important as someone with an unknown or or no infection. And actually, from a statistical standpoint, research tells us that people who don't know and haven't been diagnosed um, are more likely to transmit an infection than somebody who knows their status. Mm. Why is that, do you think? Well, what is hypothesized around that, because <clears throat> there's a couple of different factors that play into that, is that once you know your status, you also can be managing it from a, whether it's a, um, a holistic and or a, um, or a prescription or a combination of both approach, you can then mitigate, you can become aware of your body and what is happening when your body is having symptoms, if you are someone who is symptomatic, and then you can decide how you'd like to um, manage whatever infection you have. So if we're talking about herpes, maybe you're on antivirals, or maybe you don't engage in activities when you have an outbreak or when you have prodrome symptoms, if you are symptomatic. So prodrome symptoms happen in 50% of people who have symptomatic herpes. So 50% of people who get outbreaks have prodrome symptoms and prodrome symptoms are like the pre-symptoms before an actual outbreak happens. Oftentimes it's itching or tingling. And then you can, then you can approach that and say during those prodrome and or outbreaks, I'm not going to engage in activities. And then that reduces your transmission risk significantly because you're more likely to transmit when you have active signs or symptoms. There is viral shedding that happens. Um, but only in a small percentage of the time. It's only one to five days per month, depending on which strain you have and in which location, so, or which type you have, I'm sorry, in which location. So there's lots of different factors, but once you know the exact infection you have and the ways in which you want to approach 
mitigating risk and managing your infection, then you can communicate, then you can mitigate risk. And so you're less likely than to transmit it to somebody because you're already being responsible, proactive and, um, and managing risk. That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense. So, okay, tactical advice, because I know a lot of people who follow me on Instagram, who listen to this podcast, they really love like, here's the knowledge and then what the fuck do I do with it? (laughs) So if if somebody is actively dating, um, if someone is in a position in life where they may be having the opportunity to have disclosure conversations. And frankly, whether that's disclosing your own status or asking someone else to disclose theirs, how do you recommend bringing this up? And when do you recommend bringing this up in your expert opinion? Yeah. So here's the nitty gritty of like the top eight to nine tips. And I'll say them really fast. Cause like we were talking like more existential, like from a from a, here's the perspective to take. And of course we wanna look at this as like a mutual dialogue, right? A conversation. And then before engaging in activities, you get to decide whether you wanna tell them on the first time you meet them or um, on your dating app and disclose it on on the your actual profile, or if you'd like to wait a little bit, um, neither approach is wrong or unethical. You get to discern what's gonna be most comfortable. And then also that could change over time. So maybe you might try putting it on your dating profile um, but even if you put it on your dating profile, you still should have the conversation because that's assuming that they actually read the full profile <laughs> and not everybody does. Yep. So you want to confirm that they're aware of that. But then again, that's where the conversation is still necessary because you also are looking for information, right? So before putting someone at risk, before engaging in activities, but how soon you tell somebody gets to be up to you. And, um, and there's two schools of thought, like it's six to one, half a dozen of the other. Sometimes people like to do it right up front because they feel like then they're not emotionally invested. And so the risk of, of hurt feelings from their perspective um, is less because they're not as into that person and they haven't invested as much time and energy into them. But sometimes that also means that the other person feels the same way, like there's not as much invested, they're not as engaged or as interested and that and that connection hasn't developed yet. Um, and then from there, if you're, if you're making sure to talk to them before engaging in activities, you get to decide the environment, the modality that's going to be safest and make the most sense. Maybe it's text message, maybe it's WhatsApp, maybe it's face-to-face. Um, how, however you want to communicate with that individual, what's authentic for you is fine. And, and what is going to be the safest environment for you is the priority. You also get to decide what level of information you share. The only thing that's necessary is the current known infection. You don't have to tell someone about a past infection if it's occurred. You don't have to tell anyone how you contracted it, whom you contracted it from, the number of people you've engaged in activities with. None of that information is their right. That is entirely up to you. If that's part of your story and part of the narrative that you want to disclose, then by all means, share whatever you'd like. You get to discern. That is your boundary to make. And then um, let's see. Uh, Of course, do your best not to take any response personal. So that's easier said than done. And I totally acknowledge that. However, no one deserves anything other than an empathetic, compassionate response, a kind response. And so if you get less than that, 
um, that that's an indicator of them and their personality and they're projecting that to you and telling you a story about who they are. It is not a reflection of who you are. So that can help um, determine how you would like to move forward, of course. And then I think it's important to share a resource or two if you're, if you're speaking from a little bit more of an in-depth conversation. You can share a factual resource and then also maybe one that is a storytelling and shares more of the human side of what that might look like and mean to have an STI. Um, and you're welcome to discern whether you're interested in answering questions for the individual, but some of the responsibility and onus ends up getting put on the person with the infection, kind of similar that we were seeing in the Black Lives Movement and still continue to see that a lot of Black people end up doing the work and having to do the work on behalf of the people who are like, well, is this racist or is this uh, bad or tell me why? And it's like, really, it sucks to have to be the person educating when the harm is being done to you. And so you get to decide how open you are to educating and informing. And I like to give the people, the people whom, whom we're having those conversations with a beat because you're also, if you're also receiving information from them, you have to digest, like, how do you want to move forward? What does that mean for me? What does that look like for our relationship? Do I want to continue to pursue a relationship, et cetera? So I think providing a little bit of space and allowing everyone to make the decisions that are going to be best for them, and then moving forward and honoring that and, um, and accepting it for what it is and realizing that it is not a reflection of who you are, nor is it indicative of all future relationships. And that's hard for people to grab their heads around because of that cognitive bias that I talked about earlier. We feel like that's confirming what we believe to be true about ourselves, even though we don't want that to be true. And it's not. You have to ignore that bias that already exists that's telling you that, see, this person did, didn't want to be cool or was awful to me. And that's going to be reflective of all future relationships. And that's not uh, true. That person's just a dick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, thank you so, so, so much. Okay. So before we wrap up, just anything that you want to leave folks with if if you want them to take away anything hmm. oh that's such a big question i, I think know. that it's okay to process and be where you're at with this right like everyone's like wow janelle i just how did you get to where you're at and how are you so confident and comfortable talking about having herpes? Like I talk about herpes, like I talk about what I'm having for dinner. I mean, the, the conversation and the word comes right rolling off of my tongue. And but that took a lot of work that takes ongoing work and it's a process and we're continuing to grow all of the time. So be compassionate and gracious with yourself and where you're at in that process, because Sometimes we even go backwards. Sometimes I feel crappier about it than I do necessarily today. I mean, that the ebbs and flows. And so I think to hold space for yourself and to wrap your arms around yourself that this it's okay to not love that this is the current situation if you have an STI or it's okay. It's also okay to not want additional infections and to be like, this is not okay for me. So how do I, how do I make sure this doesn't happen? Like all of those things are valid. So to honor who you are and where you are at this point in time, but to know that there also can be progress made in a different direction and you have the capacity to do that, um, to be your own best advocate. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? my absolute pleasure yes if you would like to reach out i am at the sti project so the the is included in all of our 
all of my online handles um, on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter and Facebook. Um, my personal Facebook page is really active. And so, yeah, all over the place, I'm on all social media handles as well as the stiproject.com. So that's where you can find um, free webinars and resources as well as larger programs and asynchronous courses that you can take. But there's a lot of free content and free courses that exist. I have a whole free hour long disclosure workshop um, that is really great for folks that kind of walks through a lot of what I talked about too, but also in picture format. So if you are a visual individual and would like to sign up for the free, free workshop, then please come find me at the stiproject.com. Incredible. Janelle, thank you so much for your time. And I hope everyone listening gained something, learned something. And as usual, feel free to reach out with questions, tag us on Instagram, share this episode with a friend who you think it could help and subscribe, rate and review. I'm just going to be a broken record all the time. <laughs> Janelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Yes. Thank you. That's all for today. You sexy folks. What questions came to mind as you were listening? Continue the conversation with me over on Instagram at the right underscore Rachel. And don't forget, please leave a rating and a review so that we can continue erasing shame and stigma together.